thank you so much for checking out my podcast, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole, where I dig through my record collection of about 600 records and my tiny brain. And I take a fun look at my favourite songs, artists and bits of songs that fall within a different, pointless and often stupid theme every episode. I do miss nuggets in each hole, but I only add examples that have given me some joy as a music fan or a slight Norwegian wood as a musician. I do have a website, arockandrollrabbitholepodcast.com, which has all of the previous episodes, some bonus episodes and Spotify playlists to all of the songs featured in each episode. There is high-level swearing, soft-level humour and mid-level entertainment. And if you don't like it or feel that I have missed something that I like in my record collection, then hit me up at I will never read this email at gofuckyourself forward slash rabbit hole. And I'll get back to you as soon as I can. But seriously, you can say hi on Instagram, a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, and most importantly, share if you have a like-minded music buddy. Anyway, thanks again, and here goes. As always, thanks heaps for listening or thanks for checking this out for the first time. So last week we did a bit of a deep dig on songs I like that have the word TV or television in it. And in this episode, we'll do a dig on radio mentioning songs. And if you didn't listen last week to the award-watching podcast I produced, shame on you and this is what you missed. So let's start the episode with one that's very obvious to me, and it's the one that popped into my mind first, and it's a song that was most famously played at Live Aid on the 13th of July 1985, and it was written by Queen drummer Roger Taylor. When it charted in 1984, it meant that all Queen members had written a top 10 single. Radio Gaga went to number one in Belgium, Denmark, Finland, Ireland, Italy, Netherlands, Portugal, Sweden. Number two in Australia, Austria, Netherlands, Norway, Britain, West Germany. Number four in New Zealand and 16 in America. 
talk about Radio Gaga, which is just such an incredible song and one that you wrote. Where did it come from? It came from my son, my little son, who is uh, tiny and he's half French. I think he just, you've listened to the radio and he said, Radio Gaga, which is a French word, meaning that. You yes. Know. Uh, um, and uh, it really came out of that. And I had a synthesizer, it was on a Sunday afternoon, I had a synthesizer at home and a sequencer, and sort of the bare bones of it came out of that, yeah. Did, did, did your son do the hands as he said it? Uh, no, no, he didn't, he hadn't got that far. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell us about Live Aid, I mean, voted mm. by numerous awards who give out these things, saying it was just the best rock performance in the history of the world. So Live Aid for you, the event, mm. was it just an incredible day? Was, oh. Well, that, that's exactly how I describe it. It was just an incredible day. I remember the sunshine. The sun suddenly shone for that day. There was a fantastic atmosphere in West London. I remember all the windows were open and they were all playing Live Aid. I remember going to the show and walking down the street and nobody in the street. So like it, almost like a sort of World Cup final day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was that streets. kind of atmosphere. And then the, the audience were... F it was great. You know, the sound was horrible on stage, but... As long as it was good out the front. Yeah. 9.1 yeah. billion people. Was it? Yes. I mean, that's, I didn't have that many around. <sighs> On the day, were you more nervous than you would have been before a Queen gig? Yes, because it wasn't necessarily our audience. I think we were booked quite late to do Live Aid, but they were fantastic. When you got off, did you have any idea of just how amazing it had been? Could you tell, I mean, the crowd, yeah. obviously the shots uh, of the crowd all doing the Radio Gaga. Yeah, I remember looking up, actually, and thinking, oh, it's going well. <laughs> And I guess that's how good Queen are, despite there only being 4.8 billion people on the whole planet in 1985. According to the interviewer, Queen played to 9.1 billion of those 4.8 billion. I think you might want to do some research there. Anyway, here is the Live Aid version of Radio Gaga. show 
and you'll find that he fucking hates choir. Let's get this bullshit out of the road with a rhythmically challenged choir. Alright, let's move on. And a song I think I used back in episode 29's 3x3 that mentions radio in the first verse and sort of echoes Roger Taylor's lyrical vibe, lamenting that music, or at least popular music, and great music's representation in the media has changed. And the song is Speak For Me by John Mayer. Now the cover of a rolling stone Ain't the cover of a rolling stone And the music on my radio Ain't supposed to make me feel alone What a drag to know I have to learn to let it go Show me something I can be Play a song that I can sing Make me feel as I am free Someone come speak for me The next radio mentioning nugget could have easily fit in episode one's building intros, also episode six's Fuck Fest of Fury, also episode 49's Shit Songs. Guerrilla Radio, but Rage Against the Machine. now. The next song was the B-side to the Mega Stones hit Miss You, and it mentions radio in the first verse. And here's Far Away Eyes from Some Girls, and I've always loved the Stones' drunken, loose backing vocals, and they're so good in the choruses of this song. And it also features some cool pedal steel guitar from Ronnie Wood.
early Sunday morning through Bakersfield listening to gospel music on the colored radio station and the preacher said you know you always have the Lord by your side and I was so pleased to be informed of this that I ran 20 red lights in his honor I had an arrangement to meet a girl And I was kind of late And I thought by the time I got there She'd be off, she'd be off with the nearest truck driver she could find Much to my surprise Here's a little bit of the demo version from 1977 with Faraway Eyes. Yeah. 
Another radio mentioning song by a Melbourne band who called it quits in 2012. Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm Chris, and we are one half of Jet, and you are watching out as a news service. The rock band Jet has called it quits. It was announced late yesterday, March 26th, that one of the most internationally successful Australian artists in recent history will embark on solo endeavors. In a statement, the band said, after many successful years of writing, recording and touring, we wish to announce our discontinuation as a group. From the many pubs, theatres, stadiums and festivals all across the world, it was the fans that made our amazing story possible and we wish to thank them all. Thank you and good night. The band's Chris and Nick Sester admitted in an interview in support of 2009 Shaka Rock that it's hard to keep the fire burning after hard times in the industry. You know, just combating uh, some of the <clears throat> the rough ride we've had over the last few years. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of shit happening to us over the last couple of years, and and um, you know, it can really test the uh, willingness of the participants, if you will, and um, just to you know keep the fire burning. You know, is 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 the first obstacle, and which which we tackled um, in a really simple way of just sort of hanging out as as friends again, like without music and just you know, and just spending time together and talking about talking about what's transpired over the last few years and just becoming friends again, you know. The band had a monster debut with Get Born and the hits Cold Heart Bitch and Are You Gonna Be My Girl, and they talked about the initial success. Get Born was like a modern classic. It sold so many. It's almost, and I only say that because not, not many records sold as many as that one in the last 20 years, you know. So you have to sort of take that into perspective and not every record sells the same as the other one. Jet the Band will not be an entity. However, they still exist as a licensing entity and will still be managed by 10th Street. Jet followed 2003's Get Born with 2006's Shine On and 2009's Shaka Rock for a combined total of 6.5 million albums sold worldwide. Apparently Jet have been back together since 2016. And here's Radio Song by Jet. I'm caught in a trap of my own Like everybody I know This won't be played on your
radio mentioning song. It was released in May 1984 and it went to number two in the US. And I was interested to see that this artist has never had a number one single in America. This song sold over a million singles in the US and spent four weeks at number two behind Duran Duran's The Reflex and Prince's When Doves Cry. And the radio mentioning song is Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark that drops the R word in the second verse. And Friends actress Courtney Cox was in the video clip and here's her talking about her audition through her new weird alien face. Yep, she's done that plastic surgery thing. Video. Do you listen to that song at all? If you if that comes on the radio, do you go like, oh, I don't even want to hear that? It, it, or, or is that still important to you, that song, Dancing in the Dark? Well, Bruce Springsteen is such a, I mean, he's God, he's so incredible. I love that song. I get a little embarrassed because I do feel like when I watch the video, when I see it, I mean, God, I felt, I mean, did you see my dance? It was pathetic. I'm not a bad dancer, <laughs> but that was horrible. I was so nervous. When you uh, went in for the audition, it was an audition of all professional dancers. They were all warming up, doing their stretches and stuff. And you walked in and were like, uh, they're not going to pick me. There's well, no I thought way I was in gonna... the wrong place. Yeah. I was like, what, wow. what's, I, I don't know what they're doing, but I can't even bend my leg. Like, this is it. So I, uh, <laughs> I went into Brian De Palma's office. He put <laughs> on the music and said, will you dance? And I, I thought, right now, here in front of you, just the two of us. And it was so embarrassing. I think that's why I got it because I was literally like, okay. And um, I think that's what they wanted, a fan that just couldn't believe it. Thanks, Lizard Lips. Another absolute cracker that mentions radio, but this time in the first verse. And this song went to number 23 in Canada and the US. And the song is Running Down a Dream by Tom Petty. It's actually not a heartbreaker song. It was actually off Tom Petty's solo album, Full Moon Fever, from 1989. But it was written by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers guitarist Mike Campbell and also Jeff Lynne from ELO. song I featured way back in episode 5 and it's one of my favourite songs written by a mate and I also played a bit of semi-in-tune mandolin on it and it mentions radio in the second verse and some great lyrics in Green Lights by Patty Cummings When the morning came I felt alive I 
felt the life and karma were both on my side. Chance and possibility were both on the rise. Forces once were hindering, but now riding by. Flanking me with good intentions. play the whole of Green Lights by Paddy Cummings at the end of the episode because that's the kind of power I wield around here. And this one hit wonder song, which I've always loved, is a radio mentioner too. Jesus Jones, right here, right now. And it drops radio in the very first line. TV favorite thanks to MTV. Their hit single Mexican Radio from their album Call the West is about to become a radio classic as well. And here it is. Let's take a look. It's been enjoyed for years, but the rest of the country is just catching on thanks to the efforts of our next guest. Their song Mexican Radio has been a club hit for months and it is certified as an MTV classic music television. Is that what that says? That's what it says. And it's just now beginning to break into the top 100. Here are Ta-da. Stan Ridgeway and Mark, Mark Moreland yes. of Wall of Voodoo. Now that was just, that piece there is very funny. I mean, it's a, a neat tune, but it's kind of just a funny piece of video. Is the song meant to just be a fun, crazy tune? Well, some people are easily amused, I guess. Sure, I, I loved it. You know, no, I, I, I well, we like doing it. it too. No, it was fun to do. Oh. Um, we just figured we were going to make a film that, um, you know, we could be just as stupid as the next guy, so. <laughs> when you started out, you weren't a group, right? You were a company that did what? Uh, well, we had a couple of scams going. We, we were just trying to do anything to get out of 
uh, having your regular nine to five job, you know. Um, gosh, at this point, I wish I had a real job, Mark. Oh yeah. Um, but um, like some real money. Yeah, we were doing mail order, and we did. Uh, uh, we had a soundtrack business. Uh, just like uh, we would leave tapes on, like producers' doorsteps, hoping for the best, you know. Not really getting much of anything, and it kind of turned into a band after that. Basically, but it was that the people that were in the company together just one day decided let's put a band together. Well, it wasn't really one day; it was over a period of you know a couple of months. Because what the mail order business and the soundtrack business wasn't going that that no. well. We, no, we kind of fell into it, really, kind of a on mistake. You know? We were selling like uh, uh, sea monkeys. That's what we were doing. Sea monkeys. They always pop. I mean, there's not much money in sea monkeys these days. Well, we thought there was going to be a lot of money in sea monkeys, you know. Um, we, How many we, did you sell? Oh, we, we sold a couple of crates of sea monkeys. It just got to be really tiresome after a while, like licking the stamps and doing all the gumming and stuff. And um, after a while, no one wanted to do it anymore, and everybody would just be in the corner eating pancake mix or something. <laughs> so we just, uh, you know, uh, kind of got tired of that, and we started uh, being asked by bands around town to open, you know, to play for them, uh, you know, as an opening band. And we would just get up there and play our soundtrack material. And uh, after a while, I started working into a situation where it was like we wanted to find a singer. So we went out and tried to find a singer. And, um, you know, we couldn't find anybody. I mean, uh, everybody wanted to be, uh, you know, Iggy Squiggy with a 10-foot mic cord or something. And, uh, you know, the, the guys in the band said, well, Stan, you know, why don't you go do this, you know? So, um, you know, I said, well, okay, you know, I'll, I'll do this for now. And for now, it's turned into, like, for a long time. Um, <laughs> the album has been out seven months. Yeah. And it's just now cracked the, the top 100. Do you think the MTV, the music television, had a lot to finally getting it there? Well, it was a factor. Because we, we'd been touring for two years before this. And we'd set up like little, you know, uh, you know pockets of support throughout the country uh, that, that liked the band and what we were about. And... Um, uh, MTV was a way of kind of bringing all those factions together, in a sense. Do you think the video piece you did helped it more than had it just been a tune that would have gotten some play on the radio? Yeah. Um, I think what you, what you found was a lot of uh, people watching the film and liking that and liking what they saw and calling up radio stations and saying, hey, you know, we want to hear this. And the radio station saying, who? You know, wall of what? Wally Hoodoo, you know, what is Forget this? Forget it. You know, and, and um, yeah, after a while, you know, it just became kind of uh, so incongruous that they had to, had to add it. Finally go know? for yeah. it. Yeah. Got a nice Do view get, here, Bill. Thank you. It's a lovely <laughs> You don't know how many people comment on that. Everybody comments. A lot of people burning the midnight oil. Huh? Well, they're all up late watching this show, and they're waiting for this commercial to come on because uh, we're selling sea monkeys and several other things. Eight-foot giant balloons this big. And we'll be back with Wall of Voodoo.
is a Melbourne song from 1978 from a band called The Sports that mentions radio in the first verse and also in the chorus. So that's a double pointer. I'm good. So what do uh, what do the Ramones stand for these days? Is it has anything changed since you started? Has your outlook or your attitude changed? Well, no, we still we still have very high principles and uh, we still maintain integrity. That's what reigns supreme in the Ramones. And uh, we still do things our own way and we still write the best songs and uh, you know, I mean we're not uh, we we're not out to like sell anybody short or ourselves, and uh, you know, it's nice to walk down the street and kids, you know, say you guys are the best. That's you know great. Can't beat that, you know. I mean, uh, and nowadays most of the bands that that are around are all these like uh, these glam kind of these really shit bands, you know, like uh, Poison and uh, Britney Fox and all this nonsense, you know. And, um, you know, I mean, there, there are people that care that still are out to produce, like, great music and, uh, and be, you know, to blow you away. Like, you know, uh, Motorhead or Iggy or uh, ACDC or um, there's a lot of good people out there still. But most of these people, like, fall into this kind of m mode where everybody looks exact exactly the same. They all use the same hairspray and lipstick and... Uh, and uh, that's like good enough, you know. Yeah. And so, and that's that's not what that's not uh, what what we're a part of. We never will be, you know. So between the, the people that are out to obviously make money and the people that are um, very politically oriented, does it is it hard? Do you think anymore to just play music? Is there pressure on bands to to do something other than just make music? No, I mean, this, I mean, it, it really depends on what you what you want out of it. I mean, I remember when I was like growing up, and I was 16, I saw the Who in uh, 1966, and and I was blown away, and it left this indelible scar on me that uh, I'll I'll take to the grave with me. That uh, really uh, had a lot to do with what inspired me, you know, and what uh, I put into the Ramones as well. You know what I mean? As far as um, I mean, they were like the most exciting band I'd seen, and they were the, they had great songs. They were real aggressive, and uh, they really, 
you know, they were just like uh, very special and unique and, uh, you know, totally innovative, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I admire other bands that are that way. I mean, that, uh, I mean, it's, it's really hard to, to like anybody nowadays because most people let you down, you know what I mean? You see something you like and then, uh, you know, they'll do one thing that's great and then they'll go for the money, you know? And, um, you know, I, I admire anybody that's unique and uh, innovative, you know? This is Rock and Roll Radio. Come on, let's rock and roll with the remote. Have God is in the radio? I guess if he's anywhere, that's where he'd be.
some more Melbourne rock with the living ends, What's On Your Radio. Now, time for our My 70s guest. And this week in 1979, Trevor Horn was at the top of the UK singles chart with Buggles and Video Killed the Radio Star. Little did we know that he would play a major part in the sound of the next decade. As a producer, Trevor went on to create hits for Frankie Goes to Hollywood, the group Yes, and the Pet Shop Boys, amongst many others, as well as co-founding The Art of Noise. He also worked with Paul McCartney, Tina Turner, Grace Jones and Mike Oldfield, and owned the London studio where the Band-Aid single was recorded. You certainly did with Video Kill the Radio Star. There was uh, a whole chapter in your book devoted to that uh, record and making that record. It was a long process, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was, because it was quite complicated, you know. But still, it, it, it came out okay in the end, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> well, after all the work of making the demo... And then you got signed to Island Records. How did that come about? Well, that came about uh, because Island had already turned us down. But um, a guy called Lionel Conway, who still is a music publisher, even though he's in his 80s out in L.A., he heard Video Kill the Radio Star, and at the time he was running Island Publishing. And he called Chris, Chris Blackwell, and said, I know it's not normal stuff, but it's a hit record. And suddenly we got a call. And Ireland signed us. I mean, we, we were kind of taken aback too. And I think that's how, how we ended up doing Dan I, because I think Dan I was probably on Ireland. And as soon as we signed, they signed us as producers as well. And we started making Video Kill the Radio Star, but then, you know, they uh, said, can you fix up this Dan I track for us, you know? And who was us? You and who else? Me and Jeff. Me and Jeff Downs. That was the Buggles. You had the demo of the song, and then you, yeah. you wanted to work on that, and so, and you eventually ditched it, didn't you? The whole thing has started again. Yes, because we had, so we had a great demo, but we couldn't use it for all kinds of reasons, contractual reasons. But I don't go into the book in the, in the book because it's too complicated. So we had to remake it. Also, you know, it needed a tiny bit more content, and we went at it thinking we were going to change everything and we changed a load of things I spent you know two weeks doing a version of it and at the end of it it was dead so we had to go back and do it exactly the way we'd done it on the demo but with changes towards the end but you know when, when we actually played the backing track for it for video because there was no machines then and so we had to play it and we were trying to get the drummer to play like a machine we literally played it from 
probably six o'clock in the evening to four o'clock in the morning, over and over again, just piano, bass and drums, to try and get it to sound as though it was all programmed, you know? I remember by the end of it, we had the drummer on triple rate because he was getting so angry at having to play it over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Jeffrey and a guy called Paul Robertson, really great drummer. How did you get that sound of your vocal on Video Killed the Radio Star? I sang it with a hand mic, a SM57, plugged straight into a Vox AC30, and the Vox AC30 was mic'd up. And which is what, a guitar amp? Used... It's a guitar amp, yeah. Right. Famous for, you know, Brian May uses sort of eight of them. I say it in the book that we had to rent it back because it was the one that we used on the demo, and I'd sold it. <laughs> after we did the demo, because it had been my amp, but I, I was so broke, I'd sold it. And I had to sort of rent it back at an exorbitant rate from the guy I'd sold it to. <laughs> and it, it wasn't working properly, so I was kind of singing, I heard you on the wireless back in 52. Then. <laughs> and I sort of give the amp a kick, you know? And, uh, well, it was a big hit in 1979. Then two years later, it was used as the very first video. On MTV. Yeah. I mean, it could have been written for MTV, couldn't it? I mean, would, were you really thrilled about that, that that was the first ever video on MTV? Yes, I suppose I was, really. It's never seemed to have amounted to anything other than people say it. And you think, well, I was the first video on MTV. There you go. It was tailor-made for them, really. It was. don't sing soppy songs about teenage love or about pickups at the local disco. They tell of white riots. They warn of Armageddon time. They shout about the cost of living. They say they owe no allegiance to either the right or the left. And despite an almost contemptuous disregard for exposure on TV and radio, they're one of the most successful groups in Britain today. It's early afternoon, and lead singer Joe Strummer gets himself together with a selection from Martin Luther King's greatest hits. For a man who sung himself hoarse the night before and is now about to travel 50 miles to do the same in foggy Edinburgh, Dr. King's vision from the mountaintop is stirring stuff.
As the group leaves town, the entourage's strays are bailed out. The Clash and their enthusiastic fans have had more than their fair share of attention from the law. The result, rightly or wrongly, is suspicion bordering on paranoia. Frankly, the Clash don't regard the boys in blue as potential friends. It's so boring down the local neck, like, say, example, in Dundee, that they just love to grab a few pufters from London and, uh, you know what I mean, it livens up the police station. You know, I've done it in Newcastle, you know. They obviously, they, they, you know, they're fed up with nicking the same old drunks or whatever, and then when you've got a few fancy boys up from London, you know, grab them and have a bit of fun. And maybe, you know, if, we, if you can do them for a bit of something heavy, you know, you can get a bit of promotion, I don't know what it is. The audience go wild, and um, probably the police react in the same way, perhaps, you know? And so we seem to attract quite a bit of it. We could do well without it. Above all, the Clash pride themselves on putting on a professional show, giving the kids value for money. Getting there all the same. They're great to the kids as well. They stood outside their hotel for about 10 minutes last night. It was freezing, and they signed autographs and everything. It was great. They're not a ripper. An hour before the concert, the atmosphere in the dressing room is almost monastic. However, Joe does have to have a little something to get himself on stage. Honey and lemon for his voice. I've never been able to keep healthy in the winter. But how long have you been waiting? Since it was two o'clock. Why have you waited all that time? To get an autograph or something. Just to see them. We've not got tickets either. The band's concern for their fans even runs to letting some of them into the concert free. The group also fights to keep its record prices down. Their last double album was half price. Their stand, though, has been expensive. It's rumoured that they owe their record company a six-figure sum. Frankly, they're broke. They've no money to buy homes or drive fast cars. They're rock and roll gypsies, constantly on the move, frightened to stop. Do you get angry with the record company? Well, I have done. When they, when they put records out you don't like, you know, of your own ones that you don't think should be the one, then you get angry with them, yeah, and there's all sorts of arguments. And when, they, when it seems like they're just going berserk, ripping people off, you know what I mean? The whole music business is really based on ripping people off, I think. So we're sort of a counterbalance force there. And uh, when they try it with our stuff, yeah, we do get angry, don't we? Relationships between bands and record companies is by and large a pretty unhealthy one. I think the record companies spend too much money and encourage the bands to spend too much money. They invest too much, I think. Um, and the whole system is geared up for spending enormous sums of money and therefore getting bands enormously in debt. So they feel that they know that if they start really shaking the record company and standing up for their own rights too much, then in the last analysis, the record company can pull away the money. Oh, we could be out of trouble this time next year. Providing you keep making records? Sure. While the show goes on. If we stopped, it sort of isn't really recuperable money anyway. No, so, if it stops, it stops, but at the moment we don't feel like it should stop. We'd all have to take a minicab to the bankruptcy court if we knocked on the head now anyway, probably. 
interrupting all programs. This is Radio Gotham Pirates Satellite. Orbiting your living room, cashing in the Bill of Rights. Human army surplus or refusing of the lights. This is Radio Gotham Pirates Satellite. Sons have a song called Radio. there because that was almost drifting into a bass solo not on my watch mate i bet you they won't play this song on the radio i bet you they won't play this new song it's not that it's or controversial just that the in words are awfully strong you can't say on the radio or You can't even say I'd like to you someday Unless you're a doctor with a very large So I bet you they won't play this song on the radio I bet you they dare well program it I bet you the Ingold program directors Will think it's a load of horse 
That's Monty Python with I Bet They Won't Play This Song on the Radio. Nirvana have a song called Radio Friendly Unit Shifter, but it doesn't mention radio in it. And there's, of course, a radio mention in this cheese factory. have a song called Radio Song? Hey, I can't find nothing on the radio. Uh, Yo, turn to that station. The world is collapsing around our ears. I turned up the radio. Anyway, that should do us for the radio songs. Thanks again for listening. Please share, subscribe, rate, all that sort of fun stuff. And as I threatened earlier, I'm going to finish up with Paddy Cummings' Green Lights. Check out the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com and click on the victims link and you can hear a bunch of Paddy's great songs over there. And I hope to catch you all soon. And thanks again. See ya. When the morning came, I felt alive. Felt the life and karma were both on my side Chance and possibility were both on the rise Forces once were hindering but now riding by Flanking me with good intentions
What the fuck was that?